Well, good morning, guys. You can see Pastor Gary is, is not with us today. He's on vacation, which I um, pray they had a wonderful week. I believe he's traveling home uh, this morning from up north, and so just pray for his safety as he travels home, and so we're, we'll be glad to have him back uh, here on Monday. Um, my glass of water here actually serves a couple purposes uh, this morning. First, it's going to serve the important purpose of wetting and refreshing my mouth should I get nervous in teaching this morning, which likely I will, and It'll be very helpful at that point. Um, but the second purpose for my glass of water this morning is to serve as a physical picture um, for my opening illustration. So as you can see, I'm not very creative, but this is what we have today. So uh, consider water with me for a moment. Um, water is a pretty amazing liquid, isn't it? Um, it can be used in countless ways. Let me just give you a few. Uh, water is a great drink. Um, actually, it's the best liquid we can drink. Um, it's calorie-free, it's super refreshing, it's crucial for the body, and we're told to drink, I think, at least eight cups a day. Is that right? Uh, personally, I'm not always very good at drinking enough water each day, but I hear when you do, um, you feel much better. I'm going to have to actually work on that. Um, but just as important for our bodies, water is also greatly important for everything that grows. You know, For example, trees, grass, and all types of uh, vegetation must have water to survive. Water is critically vital for every type of plant on earth. Now, without water, plants die. Now, I could go on and and continue to list many more life-giving and helpful uses for water, but I want us to consider another aspect of water. It's power. Uh, Water is powerful. Uh, We don't often think of the power of water, but when when water in large quantities um, is together, it's, it's an unstoppable force. Uh, too often incurring uh, events on earth that create and, harness the parness, create and harness the power of water are hurricanes and tsunamis. Let me give a few examples uh, that I believe most of us will remember. Uh, the first one, Hurricane Katrina. In 2005, Katrina devastated the Gulf shore of New Orleans. Uh, the rise in the power of the water caused, I think, 50 levees and, and uh, flood wall failures within the city. So despite man's best attempts to build levees and walls to protect city, uh, they were no match for the power of water. Uh, Tsunamis are another example of the power of water. In the last decade, there have been two devastating tsunamis. Um, In 2011, a tsunami off the Pacific coast uh, wreaked havoc on the coast of Japan. Uh, There were some 125,000 buildings that were just leveled. A nuclear meltdown happened at the time, and over 15,000 people died as all the result of just a massive wave of water. And one more example, um, who can forget the very sad tragedy of the Indian Ocean tsunami about 10 years ago? Uh, This tsunami uh, greatly affected the coastline of 14 countries in all, um, traveling as far as East Africa. Some waves were as high as 100 feet. Can you imagine that? Now, tragically, nearly 230,000 people lost their lives in one of the worst disasters ever recorded. Now, I bring up these horrific natural disasters simply to illustrate the great power of water and the unstoppable force of water. Water is vital and invaluable for life on earth, yet it also can be an incredible force, and we must never underestimate its power. We've been studying the book of Acts the past few months. Um, Acts is a book telling the story of how God built and expanded the church from a small band of, of 12 disciples to many thousands of people. Acts makes clear again and again the manner in which God builds his church. In Acts, we see that God built 
his church by the power of the Holy Spirit through the continual preaching of the gospel. And we'll see both of these components today in our message, the power of the Spirit and the preaching of the gospel. Now back to my opening illustration. Um, like water, the Holy Spirit is, has countless life-giving and sustaining roles in the life of a Christian. We prayed about a few of those this morning. But like the incredible power and force of water, we often greatly underestimate uh, the mighty power that is available through the Holy Spirit for the church. In our passage today, we will see the great power of the Holy Spirit on display. The church is beginning to encounter some significant obstacles and adversity to its mission to witness Christ. But we're going to see quite clearly the mighty power of the Holy Spirit to overcome whatever stands in the way of building his church. See, I told you I would need that. So um, I'm excited to open God's word uh, with us this morning. I believe God wants us to see that as Christians in today's world, we don't need to live in fear or despair at what's happening all around us. But as we look to God and his spirit, we can be confident and have great hope since God's spirit lives in us. Nothing can stop his plan to redeem the world through his faithful teaching of the gospel. Um, now, let's get in our passage this morning. Would you um, open your Bibles to Acts chapter 5? Um, we're going to be reading through this together, so it would be great if you could have a Bible open. In the pew racks there in front of you, there's Bibles for you to grab. Um, that Page 1082 is where Acts 5 can be found there. And so um, I want to um, pick off here, start with actually uh, a verse from Pastor Gary's message last week, verse 11. Um, if you're not here last Sunday, uh, Pastor Gary preached a message on, on how we are to live as the gospel community. And it was just an incredible, powerful message. If you're here, you know what I'm talking about. But I just encourage you, you know, all of our messages are online, and so you can go back and listen to them. But last week, it's definitely a message you'd want to go back and listen to if you didn't get a chance to hear it. Um, but let's pick up in verse 11 um, here. We're going to see... Here in verse 11, what we're going to see is, one, is the first of four obstacles... Uh, that, that will threaten to um, derail the mission of the church. And so that's what we're going to talk about, is how these obstacles threatened what God was doing. So let's begin in verse 11 here this morning. Let's read that together. It says, verse 11 says, Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. So as a start, at the start of chapter 5, uh, we have the story of Ananias and Sapphira. As the story goes, uh, they sell the property in order to give the profits of the to the church. But uh, they pretend like they gave the entire amount to the apostles, when in fact they actually withheld some of them for themselves. So Peter confronts them. He confronts them with the fact that they were lying to the Holy Spirit and allowing hypocrisy and pretense to enter into the Christian community. And so on the spot... Both of them fall down and die. So in verse 11, Luke provides us with a reaction to all the people to this. And what is the reaction? Great fear. Great fear has seized them and the entire people, the church and people around them were, just in, in, were terrified what was going on. So I want you to keep this in mind as we start verse 12 in our passage today. Fear has gripped all the people and threatens to derail the church from its mission. The first obstacle is what I'm calling uh, the fear of man. So let's see what happens. Follow with me as we read um, verses 12 through 16. The apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared to join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people, 
Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered together from around the towns of Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by evil spirits, and all of them were healed. Luke has given us a summary here of what's happening in the church following the death of Ananias and Sapphira. The power of the Spirit was freely being poured out through the apostles as they were able to perform many of these miracles and these signs before the people. Yet we continue to see the effects of the earlier fear that had gripped the people. So in verse 13, it says that no one else dared to join them. So as we saw in verse 11, I imagine this is because of the fear. They were afraid of what was going on. They were afraid that they too might die like Ananias and Sapphira did. So the fear was, was crippling the people. But nevertheless, um, the very next verse, Luke seems to report the exact opposite. He says, More and more people believed in the Lord and were added to the community. So which is it? In one verse, the report is, No one else dared to join them. Yet the very next verse, Luke says, More believed. Now, though Luke doesn't, get ne- doesn't give us a reason for how this occurred, I believe this undoubtedly is the work of the Holy Spirit. It is the Spirit's power that overcomes the fear of the people. This is exactly what the Holy Spirit's all about, isn't it? Bringing dead hearts gripped by human fear alive through the faith in the gospel. So let's not forget, there's a good fear. There's a good fear that we can have, and that's the Holy Spirit grants us that fear, and that's a godly fear. Godly fear brings life, but the fear of man brings death. And so the first obstacle that the Holy Spirit overwhelms is the fear of man. The Spirit does this through the gift of godly fear, which enables us to put our trust in Christ and the power of the gospel above all else. And so when we're tempted to succumb to the fears of this world, you know, for example, fearing, maybe we fear what people may think about us or say about us, or we fear uh, financial difficulties, how we're going to pay the bills or where we're going to get the money, or we're fearing sickness or death, in that moment, we must call upon God by the Spirit, to give us the gift of faith, to trust in the promises given to us in the gospel. The Spirit of God that lives in us empowers us to defeat our human fears with the gospel. That's what we see in the first obstacle. So let's move on to verse 17. In this next section, we're going to see the increasing persecution of the church. As we have just heard, the movement of believers in Jesus continues to grow. Miraculous signs and wonders are being done in his name. As a result, the religious leaders have their eye on the movement. In verse 17, we see they're not very happy with the news. Let's pick it up in verse 17. Then the high priest and all his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. So the continued and formidable growth of the Jewish believers in Jesus causes great jealousy and envy among the high priests and religious leaders. As you recall, they arrested Peter uh, and James in chapter 4 and warned them to stop teaching the message of Jesus. So at this point, the high priest, he's fed up. Uh, it's, time to take, it's time to take stronger action against the apostles. So the religious leaders are going to intensify their approach. And so they gather all the apostles and they throw them in jail. So this brings us to our second obstacle for the early church, With all the apostles in prison, physically separated and unable to lead and teach the new Christians, 
it seems likely that the young believers are going to struggle. So this second obstacle is what I'm calling the obstacle of physical barriers. The jail, the jail cell, poses a real physical barrier to the spread of the gospel. In jail, it's going to be difficult. It's going to be difficult for the apostles to continue their witness and to continue the mission of the gospel throughout Jerusalem. So let's see how God intervenes here. Let's pick it up in verse 19. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go, stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people the full message of this new, new, of this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts, as they had been told, and began to teach the people. Well, that, that sure was easy. Uh, here we have this seemingly troublesome obstacle for the apostles and the growing believers. Uh, they're in jail, and it seemed that the spread of the gospel was, at the very least, going to be hindered. And one verse later, God sends an angel in the night to just set them free. Now notice what the angel commands the leaders to do upon the release. He says, go and tell the people the full message of this new life. In other words, get back out there and preach the gospel. All throughout the book of Acts, um, we see and will continue to see that this was the mission God had for the early church. Preach the gospel. And it is the same mission God has for the church, for us as a church today, to preach the gospel. You know, uh, when I think about our church here at Trinity, I guess what I love most about us is our priority on this. It's our priority and our emphasis to preach the gospel in all things that we do. I love that, and I'm convinced that this is the mission of every church We're called to be a lighthouse, heralding the good news of Jesus to a broken and hurting world, living in darkness apart from Christ. And so it brings me great joy to be a part of of our church, to be a part of what God is doing here, how he's taking the gospel to people and bringing life from death and, and doing wonderful things. And so our task is to continue to heed the command of the angel, to preach the message of this new life. And so to recap, um, the second obstacle the church, early church faced, was a physical barrier, was a physical barrier of the jail cell, the jail cell walls. But as we saw, they were no match for God. We see once again, God overcomes the high priest's attempts to stop God's servants from the mission, from their mission to tell others about Jesus. And so for us as a church, we too face many tangible obstacles to our mission, don't we? Maybe it's the obstacle of a church, maybe it's the obstacle of church finances, or the obstacle of needing a larger building for our ministries in the future. Whatever it may be, do we have faith that God will provide and continue his mission through us? Now, it may not look like we envision it to look, but make no mistake, God has a plan for his people here at Trinity, and he will supply all that we need for that mission. Do we believe that? Our mission is to remain faithful, to be his witnesses, and he will provide everything we need, like we see him doing here for the early church. And so let's continue reading um, to see the reaction of religious leaders. We'll pick it up in verse 21. So when the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported, We found the jail cell securely locked, with the guards standing at the doors, But when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were puzzled, wondering what would come of this. Now, do you feel the comical aspect of this entire scene with religious leaders? 
Um, we as the readers know what has ha- already happened. Uh, the apostles have been set free by the angel. But Luke provides us with a story of how the high priest comes to the knowledge of the apostles being set free. It is as if Luke writes the account to highlight the complete lack of power of the religious leaders in face of God and his spirit. So in verse 21, we see the high priest arrives and calls the entire council. The Sanhedrin of that day were akin to kind of the Supreme Court of our day today. The Sanhedrin claimed ethical and theological responsibility and power over the Jewish people. They were really a very important group of people. So the high priest calls together these high-ranking officials and they meet at the council hall ready to condemn this ragtag group of men for teaching the message of Jesus. And so we see they send officers to the jail to bring back the apostles before the council and they come back with this report. We found the jail securely locked. The guards were at the door but when we opened the doors, they were gone. They're nowhere to be found. And so I love the response of the chief priests. They were puzzled. Or as one, another translation puts it, they were at a loss. It says, if they had no category in their minds to how this could be, they're left wondering what would now happen. Now, isn't that great? Here we have this official meeting of high-ranking religious leaders in Jerusalem ready to condemn the movement of Jesus' followers, and they are left powerless from the news of the apostles vanishing. So it gets better. Let's look at verses 25 through 26. Verse 25 says, Then someone came and said, Look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the the people would stone them. Now, this report had to greatly upset the religious leaders. You know, they put them in jail to stop them from teaching, teaching about Jesus. And now they get a report that not only are they free, but they are doing the exact thing that they tried to stop them from doing in the first place. Now, at this point, the apostles, I think, have to understand um, the seriousness of continuing to preach the gospel. They've been thrown in jail twice and strictly warned not to teach in the name of Jesus. You know, they know how the religious leaders already orchestrated the death of Jesus but they remain completely undeterred. They display no fear at what the religious leaders could do to them, even to the point of death. So let's read on as the disciples face a trial before the Sanhedrin, starting in verse 27. Having brought the apostles, they made them appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priests. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him to his his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. We are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. Here in these verses, we see a third significant obstacle to the ongoing work of the early church. I'm calling this the obstacle of government persecution. Now, being in jail is one thing, but now the apostles are on trial. They're on trial before these religious leaders, and it's not going very well. We see at the end that the council is furious with the apostles, and he wants, they want to put them to death. That would not be good for this young movement of Jesus' followers, not at this time. So as the trial begins, the high priest charges this 
the disciples with, in essence, contempt of court. As you remember earlier in Acts 4, the apostles had defi- um, the council had told them not to stop teaching in Jesus' name, but they continued to defy this order. So P- Peter, speaking on behalf of the apostles, responds, We must obey God rather than men. Now we see here that Peter understood that obedience to God always trumps obedience to humans when there is conflict between the two. In this case, Peter cannot disobey God's command to tell others about his son, despite the high priest telling him to do so. Now we know the Bible clearly teaches us to obey the governing authorities that God has placed over us, but never to the point that it leads us to disobey God's clear commands to us in the Bible. God is our supreme authority, not man. And so Peter makes it clear that he must obey God first, as we should too, if we ever encounter a similar situation. Now, but notice here how Peter chooses not to defend himself. Rather, he uses this as an opportunity to share the gospel with his persecutors. So instead of defending himself, Peter shares the truths of the gospel message. Isn't that amazing? Instead of saying and trying to defend himself from, from from the threat of death, Peter just goes on to share the gospel. He tells the religious leaders the following, You see, this Jesus, whom you killed, God raised him back to life. Not only that, God exalted him, where he now reigns in heaven as prince and savior, and he offers forgiveness to those who repent and believe his name. Now, when you think about it, this is truly a remarkable act by Peter. Here he is, standing in front of the people who were responsible for killing his beloved teacher in the face of those who now were humanly um, could kill him. And what does he do? He offers forgiveness in life. Peter's words didn't go over very well. This is the second time that Peter outrightly defies authorities. But as we see, Peter is resolute. God is to be obeyed above all. In effect, Peter is saying, I fear God more than I fear you. Now, I wonder how often Peter recalled Jesus' words to him as a disciple. In Luke 12, uh, Jesus instructed the disciples with these words, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after killing the body, has the power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. This is what Peter feared. He feared God above the man. So as we see, uh, Peter offers forgiveness in Jesus. Peter's offer of forgiveness to the religious leaders is flatly rejected. So in verse 33 we read, When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. So once again, we're going to see that the Holy Spirit's going to intervene here. With the disciples facing capital punishment at the hands of the religious leaders, God sends the most unlikely person to the rescue. Um, Let's read that together, starting in verse 34. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel a teacher of the law, was honored by all the people. He stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed them, Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Theudas appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed. All of his followers were dispersed, and it came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census, and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. 
For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. Who could have imagined really such a turn of events? As apostles stared death right in its face, God works by sending, of all people, a Pharisee on the council to come to their defense. It's just incredible. Um, Gamaliel was a well-respected Pharisee, and so he stands up and he persuades the council against putting the apostles to death. So here we have this third obstacle that God, by his Spirit, overcomes. In the face of government persecution, the apostles stand firm in their convictions about Jesus, and God spares their life. Now, Christians in our generation, it seems, um, in our generation, it seems, we're going to likely face a growing persecution for our beliefs. In light of current happenings in our country, uh, specifically with you know, gay marriage and the pressure to support homosexuality, it can be tempting to be in despair and lose hope, can't it? Yes, the culture's approval of such sins is, is completely unbiblical. We need to stand against it. But we must always remember God is in control and his plans cannot be thwarted. As Christians, our hope is not in our country, but in Jesus Christ and the gospel. As we face persecution for our beliefs in God and his word, we should, like the apostles, keep our fear of God first and hold forth the truths of the gospel and the forgiveness that is offered in the gospel to those with love and grace that disagree with us. That's what we see in Peter, and that's what we should follow as well. So let's continue and wrap up here in verses 40 to 42. Um, Verses 40 says, "His His speech persuaded them, They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they offered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin, rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. The fourth obstacle that the apostles face in their mission to witness about Jesus is the obstacle of suffering. Before they are set free, they're flogged. Now, according to most sources, this is likely a severe beating of up to 39 lashings from a whip or stick to the back. I don't know about you, but I can't imagine going through such a a painful punishment. What's amazing is how they respond. They leave rejoicing. I don't know about you, but that would seem impossible to do after such a beating. Luke gives us a clue, though, in verse 41 of how they were able to respond in joy. He says, they were, he says they were able to rejoice because they were found worthy to suffer disgrace for the name of Jesus. So in the face of great suffering and pain, the apostles considered it an honor and joy to do so for the name of Christ. Now again here, I wonder how often the apostles thought about Jesus' words to them earlier in his life. Jesus had told them in Luke chapter 6, Blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven for that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. You see, what we see here is suffering rather than being an obstacle to the mission of God actually serves to encourage its growth. Here in this passage we see it it serves to increase the apostles rejoicing in joy. And so as, as we move forward in the book of Acts, uh, we will see that the suffering that came upon the early church caused the church to grow even more and more. 
The Christian church has a history of explosive growth in the face of suffering and persecution. Of course, Acts is a good example of this. But we also see it today, don't we? Um, For example, the underground church, um, Christian church in China, has exploded in the midst of persecution and suffering. The number of Chinese Christians has grown from a few million before the communist revolution to well over 50 million today and maybe even more. God is alive and at work in China. And suffering has been a means for which God has furthered the witness of Christ in China. Other persecuted countries are experiencing great growth as well. In Iran, of all places, the evangelical population is growing annually at 20%. In Afghanistan, the rate is 17%. Praise God for this. All this to say that suffering and persecution actually serves to encourage the mission of the gospel. I know it's not something that any of us ever wish to experience, but increased persecution and suffering may someday be God's will for us as Christians here in America. And if that's the case, be confident that God, by his Holy Spirit, will give us all that we need and even enable us to rejoice in such times. So to wrap up, we see again this week that that God is on the move in the book of Acts. God is building his church by the power of the Holy Spirit through the continual preaching of the gospel. We are a part of that mission. We are part of the mission to build his church here in Trinity. And so we have an incredible privilege here in Mason County to be a witness to, incredi- to his incredible love and grace. But the question is, are we willing to follow him? Are we willing to lay aside the comforts of this world to join the mission of God to save the world through his son? What we learned this morning is that we cannot do this without the Holy Spirit. It is the Spirit of God working in and through us that enables us and empowers us to boldly and courageously witness to Jesus. So whatever obstacles we may face, if we walk in the power of the Spirit, we'll be able to accomplish everything God has planned for us. This is great news. Will you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for uh, the witness of your Spirit here in the book of Acts as we see persecution come upon the church. And we see time and again each obstacle clearly is just done away with by your power. And Lord, you have given us the Holy Spirit here today. And Lord, we live to have the same power available to us. And Lord, pray that you would remind us as a church that you have supplied us everything we need um, to continue the mission here at Trinity Church to further the gospel um, to our community. And so we thank you, Lord, for that. And we ask that you would Help us not forget that you, um, that we look upon your spirit for our strength and for our ability to do that. And so thank you for that, Lord, and we pray that we would give you the glory for all of these things. And so thank you for the work of your spirit. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.